With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for September 12th, 2019, the last mustache in Washington edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. That mild chuckle was from John Dickerson of CBS at 60 Minutes. Hello, John, in New York, I take it. Hi, yeah, and I've got a mustache-related question after we do the introduction. Great. Love mustache questions. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School joins us from Houston, Texas, where she is to she is there and she's going to see the democratic presidential debate tonight hello emily yeah i think i got a press pass if all goes well you know me i could show up and knock it in for some reason but that is the idea now emily are you going to be in the hall or are you going to be in the filing center um i if i get there in time to pick up my press credential i think i can be in the filing center is that where i should be i got this email that i didn't understand should is an interesting question in that context because I mean, if you're in the hall, you see what's in the hall, and that's what only, like, 200 other people see. If you're in the filing center, you experience it more like America, except you experience it like America only if America was sitting in a bubble of campaign reporters. Oh, I want to be in the hall. The filing center will just stress me out. Yeah. Now, if you're in the hall, you'll miss that moment that everybody goes, oh, my God, you're when, you know, X happened in this cutaway, which you won't see because it'll be like an actual theater performance, but... Uh, that's not without its, um, uh, it's fun too. Cause you'll get to see all the stuff that happens behind the scenes, like all the candidates making that strange gesticulations they make to try to get the moderator to call on them next. Oh, I want to see that. Okay. Thank you. I'm so glad we had this conversation oh. boring the entire planet. Or we can cut Boring it. Boring the entire, all of our hundreds of thousands of listeners <laughs> today in debate watching tips from John Dickerson. It was really That's going to be our, our special side podcast on today's episode. In a presidency characterized by bizarre governance, this is one of the weird, weird weeks. We have a president canceling secret negotiations by tweet and despoiling the weather forecast by Sharpie. We will talk about that. Then John Bolton is leaving as national security advisor. Is America safer because of that? Then we'll talk about a great new book from Paul Tuff, The Years That Matter Most, a book about the college admissions process. Paul will join us for a very fascinating discussion about privilege and and educational inequality and college admissions. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And an important note, it's Thursday morning. We're taping. It is before the Democratic presidential debate in Houston, which is Thursday night. But if you are a Slate Plus subscriber, a Slate Plus member, you will get a bonus podcast from us tonight. We're, we're going to aim to do a podcast after the debate that will be in your feed if you are a Slate Plus member. So it's a great reason to join Slate Plus is to get this bonus podcast tonight where we will talk about the debate that is going to be tonight. And one other reminder, which is next week, we are going to be live in St. Paul, Minnesota at the Fitzgerald Theater. There are a few tickets left. We're going to have a special guest, Curtis Sittenfeld, is going to talk about writing novels about politics, writing fiction about politics, writing fiction about real life politicians. She is 
just a delightful person and delightful guest. So that will be great. And we'll also, of course, talk about the politics news of the day. So go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for our show on Wednesday, September 18th at the Fitzgerald Theater in St. Paul. The president appeared to unravel a year of negotiations by his secretary of state this week with a tweet. He announced that he had canceled upcoming secret talks with the Taliban at Camp David. These talks were aimed at finalizing agreement to withdraw all U.S. forces from Afghanistan after 18 years, which would fulfill a Trump campaign promise. And at that point, the Taliban would be allowed to participate in Afghan governance without our interference. And we would just say, goodbye, goodbye, Afghanistan. Sorry, it's been a good run. Uh, see you later. So, John, why did he cancel these talks? And why why was it so galling to many Americans when they learned that these secret talks were about to happen during the week of 9-11? Well, I, I know you were being facetious, but uh, but obviously it hasn't been going well over the last 18 years. And so that's, uh, if America were to exit, it would be not because, you know, they were saying, hey, it's been real, now we got to go. It would be because after 18 years, the country has run out of patience, energy, the president wants to be out. When you read, one of the things that was striking about reading about Afghanistan in a more focused way recently is that when you read about the daily attacks, when you hear that two dozen um, provinces are under you know, daily skirmishes, when you hear about U.S. actions or coalition actions killing you know, dozens of civilians, it feels like we're back in 2002. I mean, it reads like nothing has really changed. Now, of course, there have been elections and there's an incumbent uh, government and there is a kind of, albeit barely functioning, campaign uh, that's going on. So that's obviously different than before, but it's been a mess. Now, why did he... Well, the, the reason the president stated was because the Taliban uh, staged an attack that killed an American soldier and that was um, you know, the reason the president scuttled the talks. Of course, the question that then immediately raises is, uh, what about all the previous attacks that were taking place during the 10 months of negotiation? Uh, not many people took the president seriously when he used that as the pretext for canceling the talks. What then was the real reason for canceling the talks? It could have been internal opposition. Reportedly, John Bolton and the vice president were against it. Finally, to your question, why did people find it so galling? It seemed to be by the shape of the deal uh, as it was leaked. It was a terrific deal for the Taliban which meant that the organization that uh, initiated or didn't initiate but allowed Osama bin Laden to live in Afghanistan in order to plan the 9-11 attacks on the 18th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks were being invited to arguably the most plum place you can be invited to next to the White House, or I should say after the White House. Um, and uh, the shape of the deal looked like it was going to be terrific for the Taliban and not good either for the long-term interests of the United States or the long-term interests for the people of Afghanistan because it seemed to sort of set the preconditions for the Taliban coming back into basically into control of Afghanistan. I mean, to put a point on it, it seemed like he was inviting people who we had held in Guantanamo as terrorists to sit down at a table at Camp David and accept our terms of tr surrender. <laughs> and then they were going to go home and well, like they had to recognize the Afghan government, but then they would like take over the country. I, so it wouldn't they were well, just OK. All right. Anyway. Hold on. That was an excellent synopsis uh, coming after my rather long-winded peroration. Well done, Emily. Okay. All right. But I, I, look, I think there are two separate issues. I think there's the, the uh, how bad a deal was this? Like, is it, is it in fact a total capitulation where we're giving the Taliban everything that they want 
And, you know, is it is it abject tail between our legs departure from Afghanistan, which it, it sounds like it pretty much is. On the other hand, I would make a case that it is not at all clear that there's that there's any it's clear we cannot win militarily and it's not at all clear what we're gaining from remaining there. And so uh, an abject capitulation may be the best outcome. That's the first point. Now, I'm happy to dig the into that. The best outcome for Second point who? Is for the United States. That's the interest that I care about. It's the interest of the United States. I think that the people of Afghanistan have suffered enormously and they've suffered enormously partially at our hands, partially at the hands of, of other outsiders and partially at their own hands. But I am not sure that the United States at this point in our history has any capacity to particularly improve the situation there or win whatever that would mean. And therefore, ju- just because we have committed a sin, we've done a wrong, and people have died, it doesn't mean that we are then obliged to remain there to try to correct the sin when it's clear after 18 years that we don't know how to do it and we don't have a capacity to do it. And therefore whereof you cannot uh, do good, don't do anything. But I and feel like I the would it here... Is, there were, we're in that situation. What is your it? Because, I mm-hmm. mean, if you're imagining a peaceful, unified Afghanistan, then I totally agree with you. We seem incapable of bringing that about um, for all the reasons that have bedeviled every single invader and occupier of Afghanistan. I think, though, that we're kind of holding, helping the Afghan the Afghanis to hold the Taliban at bay. I mean, the current situation is they control 46% of the territory where a third of the people live, I think. And that's not the same as everywhere. I mean, for the other two-thirds of the people, not having the Taliban be the government is important. And then there's this question of, you know, a breeding ground for terrorists. And the deal was supposed to elicit promises from the Taliban that they were not supposed to invite the terrorists to come stay. But I don't see what possible leverage we would have to actually make them enforce that over time. I would uh, I would if, just jump off on your remark, David, where you can't do good, uh, don't do anything. An excellent line. But I think in this case, the president's decision to pull out did three acts of harm one the signal it sent to the civilians um that they don't really matter that it's only when an american soldier gets killed uh now why does that matter the change that um took place when uh u.s the u.s forces weren't doing very well in iraq was um that you had to do a better job to use a vietnam phrase of of cultivating the hearts and minds of creating a connection between the americans and the local population to turn against uh in that case al-qaeda to the extent that the U.S. is still going to have interest in Afghanistan, it would rather be have the regular people of Afghanistan be aligned with the United States. This weakened that possible um, relationship. The second thing is that it inspired the Taliban, that they they have even more leverage. They've been using lots of leverage to get the good negotiating terms that they'd already won by basically blowing things up because they knew that they had a president who wants to get out of Afghanistan almost come what may. Uh, And then finally, it totally weakened an existing government that was already pretty weakened, having been shut out of the negotiating already. So this wasn't and I know, David, you were talking about just about the the negotiations, say, the 10 months so far. But the the precipitous way in which they were uh, scuttled, um, I think, has had those three negative outcomes. I'm perfectly willing to believe this makes the situation of the Afghan government weaker. It makes the situation of civilians in Afghanistan uh, worse. I I just am not, I I think it is so, the the tendency in the United States, and particularly because we have such a big military, 
and the military wants to be used, you have a fork, you want to eat with a fork, uh, that there is this notion that, that you should use it. And because we're already there, we should continue to, to do the things that we're doing or continue to try to win hearts and minds. At some point, this is a war that's been going on four times longer than World War II went on and longer than the Vietnam War went on. And it is not even like Iraq. It's very hard for us to win hearts and minds. It's a very mountainous, divided country. It is not, it doesn't, it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a lot of cogency. It has been at war for 40 years. Most of the people who live in Afghanistan have literally been at war their entire lives. And so I accept there's probably some level of amelioration the United States can do, and the United States military can probably keep the Taliban, help keep the Taliban out of certain areas. But ultimately, is the cost that the, this country bears, are we gaining enough from it? And are we, do, are we preventing enough harm in Afghanistan for it to be worth it? And I, I have never not heard anyone make, to, for me, what is a credible case that the billions and billions and billions of dollars that we spend and continue to spend uh, justify this. But the opposite of managing the exit properly, I mean, I'm not, the, the poor management of the exit is different than wanting to stay embedded in Afghanistan in all perpetuity. I think it's a bit of a false choice. You can try to get out of Afghanistan in a better way than has been than than we saw in the last week. Right. And I'm not advocating for staying longer in Afghanistan to win hearts and minds. What I said was you don't on the way out kick them in the shins. Um, because, in fact, uh, more to the point because you're leaving, more to the point because you're no longer going to have active maybe as many troops there or as much of an active interventionist. You want to leave on the best terms possible with the citizenry to hopefully create a situation where the ground isn't fertile for the immediate return of the Taliban. Right. I mean, it seemed like the yeah. theatrics of the bungled Camp David idea was such a insult and so distracting. And then also, I would think a problem in America politically that that sort of obscured these medium to longer term issues. I mean, it's hard to argue for staying eternally in a country in which you're right, David, all those um, shortcomings absolutely apply. And yet one does want to see the United States leave with some some dignity for itself, if that's possible, or more importantly, some dignity for the people who are going to be stuck. And I just worry we leave these countries. We've asked people to collaborate with us and trust us, and then we leave them so vulnerable. Yeah, it's terrible. Can can we talk for a second about the politics of Camp David? So I think I think one of you indicated that it was was insulting somehow to use or that that, the, that certainly there was public criticism saying it's insulting to use Camp David, this place of this very distinguished place to host the Taliban, uh, especially during the week of 9-11, that it's that's a that's an extraordinary kind of blow to. Well, that was the criticism yeah. died. Yes, it wasn't yeah. just our idea. I, Camp David. Where no, no, the, it wasn't just your idea. No, no. it was <laughs> Right. Where Jimmy Carter famously got Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat to sign the Israel-Egypt peace accord. Right. I mean, that's right. its most hallowed history, I'm just isn't gonna, it? Yeah, and a lot, there were a lot of things there. And, and Clinton tried to get uh, the Israeli-Palestinian accord done there. Yes. And that's where post-9-11, uh, the Bush administration planned the response to 9-11. It's been used in these very important ways. I, I, I cannot work up to much emotion about this. I think when you're dealing with enemies that you're negotiating with and you're trying to get a deal done, sometimes you do things which which give them honor, which give them 
uh, make them feel better about themselves so that you can get something out of them. Now, it may be that I mean, the deal Jay, that we were really offering was so terrible. I thought it through to that degree. Like, if it seemed super strategic and like, yes, let's give you this bit of credibility because, you know, we think it's really going to do good and win concessions from you, fine. But it just seemed like he wanted the theater and the attention for himself. Yes, definitely. Also, you don't lay out... I mean, I think the criticism is you don't lay out the finest family heirloom China in return for such a bad deal. That yes. um, that the that the Camp David was a further demonstration of a chief executive who's desperate to just get out of there. And the downside of that and the downside of making impulsive moves like this is that um, they have real consequences. And so the increased violence that's happened in the wake of this uh, scuttled meeting at, at Camp David, uh, the Taliban seeing what they've seen for the last 10 months, which is that if they keep... Um, engaging in violence, it will uh, make the sitting president want to get out of there faster, which means the terms of the U.S. exit will that be that much more shambolic, which makes their move into uh, return to power that much faster. Um, and the reason I think this has additional resonance is that we've had a debate over the last 18 years, and maybe it was a stupid debate, but but we should figure out what the standard is and then stick to it, about whether you telegraph to the enemy whether you're leaving or not. It used to be the case that Republicans claimed that Democrats who wanted to leave Iraq or Afghanistan were by saying so out loud already handing over a huge bargaining chip in the negotiation and that they basically doomed themselves to failure. Um, and I think there's no question that the president has telegraphed and perhaps, by the way, for for great reasons, which is that this has been too much of an expenditure of to use that overused phrase. Don't say blood, blood and, and treasure. treasure. Don't say blood and treasure. Yes, I had to. In these conversations, you have <laughs> to on, touch all the cliche buttons. Yeah. Um, you know, and nevertheless, that's that's uh, that's clearly what he's been signaling and has now signaled again. Do you think this deal is actually dead, Emily? Or do you think it's going to come back? Trump loves to do this, I'm walking away from the table thing. That's his one move in negotiations. Oh, I think it's going to come back. I'm I'm hoping that the Camp David theater is dead, but I think the deal is for sure going to come back because he promised this. He wants it done before 2020. I don't think he cares. I mean, look, you know, you slash we are willing to be somewhat cold hearted about the terms. I don't think he cares at all. Right. Also, does, do Americans care about the terms? I'm not sure. Do I mean, I wonder. I, this no, is a, I don't. You know, do they care if the terms are, you know, particularly helpful for the Taliban or not? I'm... My guess is that after 18 years, um, Americans are are anxious to be done with it. I guess people don't want to be humiliated, perhaps. But now we're in the realm of like imagining public opinion, where I'm sure there are actual polls we could look at. I think that's the uh, most amazing little bit in the negotiations that I saw was that the fact that they would get to rename the country, and yeah, change it back to oh the God, Islamic Empire, insane. the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is what it was called when the Taliban ruled it, which is. I, it was that actually I know it's symbolic I felt silly for caring about that but I found that shocking I also and I don't I I, I don't know how and whether we want to go down this uh, road um, but I do wonder David about your argument about um, you know it was a it was a sin and the US can't keep paying for its sins um, what struck me is what obligation the US has having gone into Afghanistan, having tried to turn it into a democratic country, the 45,000 Afghan servicemen and women who have been killed just since 2014, in furtherance of this experiment, what obligation the U.S. owes 
and for how long it owes an obligation, those 45,000 dead were fighting in the service of an idea uh, that the U.S. came in to deliver. So there's some obligation I wanna, there. I'm going to make two points to close us. One is just on the question of obligation. I think where we have an obligation is those who have helped us, those who have served with us, who have assisted us and often in danger of their lives that we owe help to. And so if you're somebody who was a translator, if you're someone who who put yourself in a position where you're likely to be in trouble in the post uh, U.S., post-U.S. Afghanistan, that we should try to help you resettle, try to help you get to the United States in some cases. So that is an obligation I think we owe. I don't think that we can serve the greater mass of the Afghan people. The second thing I want to say is that one of the things that I find so weird about Trump, the jingoism, the militarism, coupled with the the obvious skepticism of warfighting. So he actually has not deployed the military in ways that I would have expected him to. We haven't attacked Iran. We haven't attacked North Korea. We haven't attacked Russia. We haven't attacked China. We haven't actually used the military in the way that previous presidents have. Trump doesn't seem to like it. It's one of the things that I like about him. But he has coupled that with a militarization of home. So we have militarized the border. We have these ice raids around the country. We have military parades on July 4th. It's this way in which the expression of United States military force has gone from being external to being internal. And I do not like that. That is a very like totalitarian regime kind of thing to happen. So it's, it's a, a very pernicious combination. Point. It's a really interesting juxtaposition. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Can I also just add one kind of crazy thing again, 18 years after when and what, Lou Dobbs on the 4th of July uh, made fun on Twitter of, of the, of uh, some generals who in a Washington Post story said they were a little, a little, I thought it was a little strange. The president was uh, calling for this military parade on the 4th of July. Um, And also that there were some logistical challenges of driving tanks on the roads and all of that. And so Lou Dobbs tweeted that no one of these snowflake generals haven't won a war since 1991. Two things struck me. One, has America really wrestled with and come to terms with and, oh, hey, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign. This might be a topic worth conversation. Do people really, is it the view in America that America has lost two wars? And if so, when we say never forget 9-11, what are we saying? What are we, like, that the fact that this tweet could go out and, like, just be out there struck me that that no one thought this was uh, that that Lou Dobbs was uh, worthy of sanction, and he's obviously quite close to the president and the president's mindset. Um, but is that just accepted wisdom? And if so, that seems like something that should require some comment from people who seek to lead the country. Anyway, so this idea of leaving Afghanistan uh, under what terms and what that says about the U- U.S. exceptionalism all seems to me to be um, really interesting. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GapFest and other Slate podcasts. Today, you're getting a lot. You're going to get a bonus segment on this episode. We're going to talk about how long books should be and movies, how long movies should be. We're going to decide that for you. So go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus to become a member today. Because obviously there's a right answer. There is a right answer. And we'll figure it out. And there's also, you're also... Podcast too. I think we should include podcasts. <laughs> they should probably be 10 minutes. And we've exceeded our leg. Dang it. There's also the fact that you are likely going to get a bonus podcast about the debate tonight. We are going to do a Thursday, special Thursday night debate podcast after tonight's debate, and Slate Plus members alone will get that. So go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today and get all that good stuff.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. John Bolton and his mustache are out. The national security advisor is gone after a year and a half. Emily, did the mustache jump? Was the mustache pushed? What happened? Oh, my God. I don't care about this. For one second, I feel like we're all obsessing. Who cares? Like, what's interesting is what this has to say about foreign policy and the Trump administration. I don't give a shit, excuse me, whether John Bolton resigned or was fired. He obviously was clashing with Trump, um, couldn't stay longer, or at least this one seemed a good day. I mean, there is something odd about the fact that he seemed to have sort of won the Afghanistan battle internally against the deal and then was shoved out the door. But I guess, you know, what we're seeing here is one more person who had an interest in standing up to the president and offering an alternative, sometimes diametrically opposed point of view, getting shown the door. Mike Pompeo does not seem to be that kind of secretary of state. He doesn't want to be. He sees himself as facilitating the president. He said the president deserves to have people around him who, you know, are promoting his point of view and helping him do what he wants to do. So, you know, it's been a chaotic administration. Maybe it's better if everybody is marching on the same page, especially given how hawkish John Bolton was. I mean, David, for someone like you, who's really worried about intervention, he was not a particularly good person to have around. Um, on the other hand, the idea of just yes people around Trump all the time seems disquieting. The one thing we, that bridges the two topics is the president, when asked about Afghanistan and the Camp David uh, kerfuffle, he said, in terms of advisors, I took my own advice. It was my idea and my idea to terminate it. Obviously, we want presidents to make decisive decisions. That's what the job is. You make decisions. But you make decisions based on, hopefully, a system that tees up for you uh, the best possible alternatives, and then you make the tough call. The gap in the current administration is that is that, is that pre-work doesn't take place, or if it does take place, it's totally ignored. And the downside of that is the downside we've seen now as a result of this um, impulsive decision. I mean, impulsivity is not a strategy, um, and impulsivity is not leadership or decision-making. Um, 
the decisions are tough enough. Why make them harder? Um, and that is a sort of systemic challenge that this administration has um, and, and that has real consequences. Um, and, and they're wrestling with them now. And, and Zalmay Khalilzad, who's been working for 10 months to get a deal, is now uh, trying to scrape up in the, in the, uh, in the aftermath of this impulsive uh, Camp David imbroglio. There are a lot of people who are, who are happy to see chaos in the Trump administration. Um, and, uh, and, and it's not clear that John Bolton was the was the um, was a Brent Scrowcroft, you know, a perfect person providing decisions for the president. But I think the whether he was resigned or fired matters only in this small way, which is that the president said he fired him, and then twelve minutes later, while he was still on White House grounds, John Bolton tweeted that he offered to resign. This is just another sign of a, a, such a disordered presidency, um, and and this disorder has real consequences now that that we've seen Bolton is the third national security advisor. There have been three chiefs of staff. There have been a couple of secretaries of defense and a couple of acting secretaries of defense. Same is true at Homeland Security. You can't run a railroad this way. It has, I mean, it just, it can't be. Um, And for someone who was hired um, as a businessman, just that was the argument used for him. Um, you know, no CEO would would be able to last this long with a with such a um, a mess of a staffing situation. That's all true. That's definitely true. I think on the substance, I for one did not cheer John Bolton being there. So I will. I certainly am not going to mourn his departure, and I don't really care about the manner of his departure. His hawkishness is super dangerous. His worldview is super dangerous, and it didn't doesn't seem to comport with Trump's own general instincts, which, as we were talking about, are not particularly hawkish. So the fact that Bolton is gone is not something that I am going to lose sleep over, and nor nor is the fact that he was gone in some outre chaotic process particularly something I'm going to lose sleep over because we know that Trump that's how Trump operates. And so it, it didn't reveal to us anything new, and I don't think it made this White House less effective or less orderly. The White House is already totally disordered. So the fact that Bolton was the national security advisor, which is a position that we normally invest with like enormous, it's, you know, Scowcroft, it's Kissinger, it's, it's Brzezinski, like that that's a powerful position is not really that relevant because Trump just doesn't operate in a way where that position is powerful. But isn't that, doesn't that accept a certain amount of resignation um, on your part? I mean, if there's a horse in the hospital, uh, uh, there's still a horse in the hospital. Going. I was love where this is going. How did it get there? But I mean, you're you're saying because you you've. I mean, it still should be of concern if you buy this idea that there's a horse in the hospital. You shouldn't say, well, uh, the stable master really didn't have to, much to do with the horse in the hospital. So the fact that the the stable master's gone and traditionally would have kept the horse out of the hospital means we shouldn't care about a horse in the hospital. This throws new light on a disordered process. And there are ongoing issues with North Korea, Afghanistan, China, that that even with the most ordered thinking uh, would be would bedevil any president. It feels like a bit of a, uh, a resignation in the in in that kind of analysis, which is you're setting the standard back to the chaos standard. And I think that's probably but John. Not. I mean, I feel like we have so much evidence of chaos yeah. that it's hard to imagine it being any different. Sure. But- that's one. Like, this is the way Trump is going to be as president. And if you don't like it, then you shouldn't vote to reelect him. But the idea that it's going to change seems futile. Right. Yeah. But nobody's and saying then it's- the second point. But nobody what? is saying that it's going to change. But you should still note that this is uh, 
that this is not the way it's supposed to go and not the way it's supposed to happen. <laughs> and this far into an administration, it should still be extraordinary that this is an extraordinary situation. Um, and by the way, we're talking okay, about the fundamental, I agree. Let's, the fundamental job of a president, which is to keep the country safe. Yeah. But I think the second thing is it's hard. So we hear about all this staffing disruption. And then what is the immediate fallout? I mean, the fallout is going to be down the line if something terrible happens. And then it's clear that the administration can't handle it and that all of these jerky transitions have not just been like a long running television show where you kick characters off when you don't like how they're um, doing their roles, but there were these bigger implications. I feel like short of that, it's hard to see what the immediate fallout is. I mean, it's hard for me and I am watching this like kind of closely. So it's like, it seems wrong, right? Like sure, no company would run this way. It's totally disordered and crazy and yet, you know, Rex Tillerson and Mattis, who were supposed to be the grownups in the room, they left and were not at war because it turns out Donald Trump doesn't like wars. And that's overriding instinct seems to be what's actually pulling us through. Well, I think there are short term and long term challenges. The short term ones we've seen with Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, the U.S. negotiating position is weaker. Violence is up. The underlying government that the U.S. would be handing it off to is in a worse position and the citizenry there is in trouble. And that's as a result of a disordered process that presumably if you had a a national security advisor in there or some system to keep impulsivity from driving outcomes, then those those uh, bad effects wouldn't be taking place. So I think that's one short term uh, result. I think the the long term result is we don't know um, what. Uh, the downsides are of weakening alliances. I mean, you know, Mattis basically resigned because of the of the president's disinterest in maintaining alliances. And you don't know what that alliances matter until you need them. But if you haven't been tending your alliances, they don't you can't access them as well at the moment you need them. So those kinds of things. Totally agreed. But don't you think that when all of those chickens come home to roost, Trump may not be president anymore. It's going to be hard to draw a straight line like it's all kind of muddied. Partisans will come in and say, oh, no, that whole problem, you know, the chaos of the Trump administration has nothing to do with why we're in the pickle. That Like, there's always a way of deflecting responsibility. And when you talk about costs to, like, people in Afghanistan, I mean, we just spent a long time coming to the conclusion that Americans don't, unfortunately, care all that much about what happens to people in Afghanistan. I feel like it's going to take some immediate urgent threat where there's a clear cause and effect for people to really understand i mean well, maybe de- i'm wrong and the it, electorate is picking up enough on this that it will matter well, in the election well it depends whether you're short of that it depends whether you're measuring the events by the standard of how they should operate or the or the political standard so the political standard is always bouncing around and always malleable and perhaps is more malleable now than it's ever been because people who held the whole uh, very sturdy worldview about the proper way of behaving personally privately domestically and internationally have all change the rules of the game um and so but but in such an instance uh you can make the case that standards are even abstract standards separate and apart from the whims of the electorate because uh we know how um changeable and malleable those are and even our own thinking if we even if we pretend that we're these reasoning beings we all know how we all uh, have confirmation biases and so in that kind of unfixable world standards are even more important because they're the things you return to in the midst of chaos 
And so in these kinds of instances, the political standard and how people may react and all that is all totally up for grabs in just the way you articulate it. But it seems to me in analysis, we and others have to say we have to remember the long-term consequences. And now, by the way, the long-term consequences are often used as a as a kind of a, uh, a fooler. You know, uh, you raise the, d- the danger of the long-term consequence to get whatever you want in the short term. So I'm not saying that simply talking in the long term is the font of all wisdom and genius. But we do know it's true that we can't only think in the short term. And so in these instances, it seems to me the, the pressure is to think in the long term more than ever because we're in such a transactional short-term world and the current occupant of the office, like those before him, but this one in particular, benefits from that short-termism because he can create a new reality with each new tweet storm. Totally agree. Also, excellent segue into Alabama Sharpies and pressuring scientists at the National Weather Service to back up some cockamamie theory because Trump happens to blurt it out. I mean, you know, the medium to long-term consequences of that is to erode confidence in our federal government's ability to produce good science, to demoralize all the employees who work at these organizations, and to bully the their supervisors. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm John Bolton's departure bothered me less than all of that right. this week. Maybe that's my own like flaw, but I just found that to be absolutely horrifying. Whereas John Bolton seemed like a problem in his to begin with. I agree with you, Emily. I think that that when I think about the, what the long term consequences of the Trump administration are that's more what I focus on. I think there's some danger that they will drag us into war that we shouldn't fight or or uh, poison a relationship with a Europe or with China or or wherever that we shouldn't poison. But the bigger risk is that we will destroy the foundations of government, trust in government, trust in institutions that are actually really important and that we all really need. I think they're all of a piece. I think it's all, I think it's all, and which is why Emily made that segue. Um, but it seems to me also you you start, the, the cost of, of being in these jobs starts to be higher and higher in, it, it, there used to be protections for people various, you know, at various parts of the bureaucracy. <clears throat> now that protection seems to be uh, disappearing, which means you just, why would anybody go work in a government that's, that operates like this, um, which means you end up having people who fill those jobs who have a kind of more political cast uh, or are willing to or are willing to do, uh, sorry, put up with politics. And that that probably isn't a great recruitment tool. Right. I mean, one way to think about this is all of it is a big question about whether we're going to snap back to the previous norms or some better norm after Trump is no longer president. And that will be a question on our foreign relations front, and it will be a question domestically. And whether other countries will have the forbearance to kind of say like, okay, America, let's take another look at you. Uh, We used to know you. Now we're totally puzzled and worried about you. Um, But maybe you'll change again. They sort of don't have a choice because we're such a giant on the international scene. That's not to say there won't be costs. I think with both China and Russia and maybe other countries, there will be. But that's sort of a fact. Whereas like these internal questions of eroding the strength of the democracy from within, that and maybe it's just that I focus more on those things and that's the only reason it troubles me more. But it that feels like something I can imagine us not snapping back from. So we are pleased to welcome to the Gabfest Paul Tuff. Paul 
is a writer in Austin, Texas. He's the author of the book, How Children Succeed. And now he has a new book just out, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. It's a look at how college and college admissions uh, is impacted by or and affects the inequality that that pervades this country and how certain structures reinforce it. And it's a pretty sobering book. So, Paul, welcome to the Gabfest. Hey, thanks very much. I am so excited Paul's here because ever since I read this book over the summer, I have been grabbing people by the lapels and asking them to talk about it with me. I want to assign it to my entire university because I learned a lot reading it and also it made me think differently about access to college education. It made me feel guilty about teaching at a prestigious university, but it also just made me really want to think through the issues you raise. So I'm going to start by reading a few sentences from the beginning because I think that they capture the kind of heart of what the book's about. So I'm quoting you. The American system of higher education has the potential to be a powerful engine of mobility, able to reliably lift young people from poverty to the middle class and from the middle class to affluence. But in reality, for many young Americans, it functions as something closer to the opposite, an obstacle to mobility, an instrument that reinforces a rigid social hierarchy and prevents them from moving beyond the circumstances of their birth. So if that is sort of integral to the argument you're making, what is going on here? And how much should this scramble our ideas about our individual children's success and access to college education and really just how the whole system is constructed? I think it's complicated. I, I mean, I hope it does scramble things a little bit. It certainly scrambled it for me doing this reporting. I mean, I think part of what's complicated about it is that on an individual level, higher education still is that engine of social mobility, right? Like, so I talk in the book to a bunch of young people who start with in situations without a family, a lot of family resources, and their lives change through college. Uh, but if you look at the system as a whole, it's not happening very often. Um, and mostly we have a really stratified system where uh, kids who grow up with a lot of money have one, end up with one kind of education that leads them to one sort of future. And kids who grow up without a lot of education have all these obstacles to entering that part of higher education and are instead given far fewer options. So how we think about that in terms of our own lives, where we work, you know, where our kids go to school, it's complicated because I think that we've, we've been sort of trained to think about higher education as this competitive marketplace, right, where you just get what you can for yourself and your kids. Um, but it is also this thing that is uh, determining how the, the class structure in the United States functions. I mean, Paul, in, in the book, you cite these incredible, shocking numbers about how few poor people actually end up at elite schools, that the elite schools, when you when they get a child who's been raised in poverty or raised in, in relative poverty, that student often does incredibly well in their life later on. But there's just a, a very, very, very tiny number and that these elite schools are dominated by uh, wealthier kids. Is this admissions offices are stupid? Is it that the universities don't actually want to increase uh, the number of poor kids that they're letting in? Is it uh, did they just not noticed what's going on? What's happening? Why is that? Why is it? Why are they so bad at at diversity of income. 
Um, I think there are at least two different stories going on. I think that's part of what makes it complicated is that there are these two different stories. And, it, and it, part of this, one, one story is those institutions, which is a pretty small number that really have enough money to do whatever they want. So that's maybe like the dozen most uh, richest, most well-endowed institutions, you know, your Harvard, your Yales, your Stanfords, and they are really super, super, super rich. They have a ton of money um, and they truly could admit anybody they want. And, and tuition is a tiny part of their uh, – the revenue each year. And so with them, um, I feel like it, it like the reason that they are admitting so few low income people is uh, hard to hard to figure out. You know, I mean, I think it is I think they have a lot of seats that they want to fill with um, particular wealthy kids, you know, with legacy admits, with certain types of athletes, with certain types of academic superstars. But I think there's also something in those offices where it isn't the real priority for them. There's something in the culture that makes it feel like that would not really be Princeton or Stanford or Harvard if they were admitting, you know, half of their class from the bottom half of the income distribution. So that's one problem. But then there is this whole much bigger problem that I didn't understand until I started hanging out with admissions people, which is that most, you know, highly selective institutions do not have a lot of money. Um, about a quarter of private nonprofit uh, institutions right now are running in the red. They're losing money every year. So I spent a lot of time at this one college, Trinity College um, in Hartford, Connecticut, which is in the red. And so there's this en- head of enrollment management, head of admissions, who is this like really noble and, and, and um, progressive guy who wants to admit more low-income students. And he is doing a a decent job of admitting more of them, but he can't do more because he needs, his institution needs tuition dollars. So for many institutions, it's simply a fact of we need to admit kids who can pay the tuition. I also wanted to talk about the role of the college board in all of this. I mean, you have a pretty explosive chapter, I thought, about the college board's collection of data. There was this idea a couple of years ago from an economist named Caroline Hawksby that if we just increase the information that students receive around the country, that more high-achieving, low-income kids would apply to prominent schools, that the problem was just like they didn't know enough about how to do this. And if you just gave them, it was like a $6 solution, right? Just a little more information was going to come in the mail. And the College Board was supposed to be a huge part of this. In fact, that has not translated into the kinds of gains in low-income kids attending selective schools that everyone in this equation kind of promised. So what happened? there hasn't been this sort of reckoning with why it didn't work. And and so it's possible that there was just, you know, the original experiment wasn't too great, that they didn't replicate it correctly. I think it has more to, to do with the fact that in reality, the problem was not in, in, in the, it wasn't the fault of the kids. It wasn't just that kids were applying to the wrong colleges or didn't know what to do. It was that the system is just not designed to let those kids uh, get into and be able to afford the kind of great universities they should be going to. Um, Paul, the the College Board tried to create this adversity score, which they ditched then in late August. What was that an attempt to do and why did they ditch it? I mean, so from the point of view of all the reporting that I've done over the last few years, it was one more attempt, in my opinion, on the part of the College Board to find a way to keep, you know, the SAT at the center of the admissions process and say, we're still helping poor kids do better. So the idea was we're going to not just give them one number, the SAT, we're going to give them another number of how, you know, disadvantaged your neighborhood and your school is. And again, it sort of started from the premise that really these institutions do want to admit lots of poor kids. They just are having trouble finding them or locating them or recognizing them. What my reporting suggests is that that's not really a problem at all. The problem is that these institutions aren't admitting those kids because 
they don't want them because their SAT scores aren't high enough or because they can't afford to because those students can't pay tuition. So, Paul, shouldn't the solution, the the overarching solution to this be a much stronger, bigger investment in the large institutions of public higher education? That if we try to solve the problem through the institutions of private higher education, they're going to run into these funding problems. They're always going to be favoring alumni. They have these athletic demands. But that the big public universities and and probably the community colleges can do a lot of this work and do it better, but they've just been defunded at this extraordinary rate. And that that's the, that's the, but that's the place where we could have the largest impact. Yes, certainly from a policy point of view, I agree with you uh, completely. I mean, I think, so there are these two problems and it's, again, it's the confusing thing about higher education. There are all these different systems that are not entirely integrated. Uh, and, and right, so private institutions, like we don't have a lot of public policy levers uh, to make them change their their processes. And, and yeah, and, and like at places like Trinity, there's not much that public policy could change because they mostly just are trying to make their budget, right? Um, you know, I still think it's worth <laughs> trying to influence through all the channels that the public has as, you know, as alumni, as employees, as uh, students, as parents, it's a good idea to try to influence those highly selective institutions to do a better job. And I think they could easily change their ways. But right, even if that happens, it's still a tiny segment of the higher education landscape. And it's certainly a tiny section if you're a low income student. And what's happened at the same time is we have been uh, defunding and underfunding a public higher education. There's, you know, a cut in the last decade or so of 16% in what we spend on higher education exactly at a moment where we should be spending more and more where clearly our young people especially young people who aren't growing up rich need more uh, credentials more higher education in order to compete in the economy so that is the big issue and and i think it's important to separate those two things because they are very different can we maybe illustrate that by talking a little bit about this family you clearly spent a lot of time with in Taylorsville, North Carolina. So you have this girl who's interested in probably leaving Taylorsville and going to a school out of state or at least like out of her town. You have her brother who's tried to go to college and failed at that, making the family very nervous about investing money. I felt like there were so many of the threads of the book kind of came together in this story because you know, it. on the one hand, I wanted Kim to be able to go to college wherever she wanted. And then on the other hand, it made me test my own assumptions about, like, which kind of school is really better for a particular kid. Yeah, I, I felt I loved hanging out with that family. And there's a third brother, uh, Ori, who ends up in community college studying welding. So, yeah, they spending time with them, I got to see a lot of different aspects of how families interact with higher education. So what happens to this guy? He had a really rough time being a not well-educated kid. And one of the things that he found as he went through all this was that actually what he had been told about the opportunities available uh, in his part of the country anyway to welders were totally exaggerated. Like the welding jobs that he was able to get were making like, you know, 12 or $15 an hour. So for me, his story was about how this rhetoric about there being lots of opportunities for kids who don't want to go to college is exaggerated. Paul, is there any um, role for outside philanthropies if public education is, you know, being chewed up by legislatures in various states and the private institutions have their motivations? Can Is there any solution to this that comes from the billionaires we have sloshing around in their private jets? 
not in the big picture, because in the big picture, the amount of money we spend on public higher education and we need to spend is just huge. It's, I think, beyond even our billionaires. Uh, right? And it should be public, right? It shouldn't be private. It should be public. Yeah, I was wondering whether they should yeah, d- d- give money to Trinity. I think absolutely. I think Trinity alumni should should be giving money to Trinity and they should say, like, yeah, use this for financial aid. And so I, I do feel like alumni are in this situation, whether they're super wealthy or just, you know, have enough money to donate a bit to really influence what their institutions do. And, you know, most most of the time when uh, alumni are giving money to their institutions, it's like, yeah, name a gym after me or, you know, build some new high tech center. If you say, like, I want you to use this money to admit more kids who will really benefit from this education, institutions pay a lot of attention to that. So we're having um, in the 2020 race a lot of discussion of free college among different Democratic candidates. Is that part of the solution of amping up the funding of public institutions that you and David were just talking about? And I mean, do you think that that's enough? Like, do we have to do something that dismantles the private sector part of college education in in a way that would be more threatening to lots of the people who attend and participate in those schools and teach in those schools um, like me? Or is it enough to kind of make the public institutions like much more robust and excellent um, so that they're providing the kind of access that we're not getting from these private schools? I feel like uh, private uh, higher education, like, you know, there are ways that public policy can have an impact on that. Like, you know, all those $300 million donations to uh, Harvard were tax deductible. Um, there's lots that you could do to, to uh, change that equation and, and provide incentives for those institutions to do better. But I really think they're going to mostly respond to, you know, to alumni, to employees, to students, right? And so so my hope is that we can, th- those constituencies can push those institutions in that way. Um, you know, in terms of public education, I love the fact that this is coming up on the trail and in the campaign. And I think it's really important. I, th- I feel like free college is not the right answer um, because really what the problem is, is not is I mean, tuition is an issue for sure in those public universities. But mostly it's the fact that those institutions don't have enough money. Um, it's that we we the public have just not been spending enough on them. And that trickles down to students in a big way. I mean, it, it floods down to students. It affects them in a really immediate way. So yeah, what I think Democrats should do is say we are going to spend a lot more money um, on higher education, not to make it free. I mean, we can help help certainly defray tuition for those who, who can't afford it. But, you know, if you're, if you're a, a well-off kid going to the University of Texas, you should be paying full tuition, right? Like you should be, um, you're getting a good deal. And so you should be paying full tuition. But I think there's a lot that we can do to, to make those institutions more uh, equitable. Paul Tuff is the author of The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. Get it at a fine bookstore near you. Paul, thanks for coming on the GabFest. Thanks, guys. Let's go to Cocktail Chatter. When you are contemplating the arrival of fall, wishing for a brisk fall day, wanting to see an orange leaf tumble off a magnificent oak, what will you be chattering about, Emily Bazelon? So the North Carolina state government has just become a completely... I don't know. We've used the word chaotic and disordered so much in this show. I hate to return to them, but it's like a dystopia of where democracy could go next. What happened this week was that state House Republicans overrode the veto of Governor Roy Cooper over their budget. They did this by... uh, (laughs) 
um, it seems, fooling Democrats into not showing up that day. Apparently, Democrats were told nothing, no votes are happening, you don't need to be here, it's the morning of 9-11. And then with just 64 of 120 members in the House, the Republicans voted 55 to 9 to um, override this budget veto. It just, <laughs> and of course, then they could smugly say, well, it's the Democrats' fault. They didn't show up for work. You know, legislatures have to have some kind of basic trust of process uh, in some bipartisan manner in order to function. And the Republicans in North Carolina seem willing to just blow that up whenever it suits them. It's kind of amazing to watch. And of course, because of the gerrymandering, it's hard to know what the consequences will be exactly, though it is worth noting that the state is redrawing its state legislative map uh, after last week's court ruling saying that it had been gerrymandered. So it's interesting that in spite of that political future, the Republicans still felt emboldened enough to do this. That was so shocking. Crazy. I, I uh, sign, sign on to your chatter. John, what is your chatter? Sign on chatter. Uh, my chatter is... Um, Shine on. Shine on. Uh, my chatter is about a um, a piece that ran in the Times that I would have chatted about last week, but I wasn't here. It, it's um, by Andy Newman. It's about um, a home health aide. And it's just a, I should say, it's Marjorie Salmon, who is um, who's the name of the home health aide. And it's just a description of what her life is like caring for uh, 70, this 77-year-old man that she works for. And it's just an incredible window into a very hard, demanding, but also rewarding job and two human beings who spend the day together and the complexity of that day and the, and the, and the, obviously the economic kind of insanity, it feels uh, of, of Marjorie's life, given what she gets paid based on what she does. Um, And having been through versions of this and watched, you know, when, my parents were um, at the ends of, ends of their lives. You know the conditions that that home health aides have to deal with are basically. You know they are. We're, there's not much depending on how you go out. There's not much left of you at the end of your life. And to be the guardian of that person at that stage of their life is a pretty solemn thing. Anyway, this piece uh, stirs up all of that and is just a great piece of uh, uh, reporting. I also thought it was great. And can I just say, if there is one group of workers in this country who deserve a union, it is home health aides. And it's also, I think, one of the fastest growing jobs. Um, mm-hmm. More and more people mm-hmm. are doing this work. And it, the, the, yeah, all the things that you just mentioned could change potentially if they were able to bargain collectively. The piece is entitled On the Job, 24 Hours a Day, 27 Days a Month in the Times by Andy Newman. My chatter is a completely self-serving chatter. It is about Atlas Obscura because this week Atlas Obscura announced a huge new thing and I just want to tell you about it because uh, I think it'll be good for you and I hope you'll join me with it. So we have just signed on to a big partnership with Airbnb and Airbnb is invested in Atlas Obscura and Airbnb and Atlas Obscura are now going to massively expand the number of trips and local events that we're doing. So so Atlas Obscura is obviously a guide to the world's hidden wonders, but also we take people to see those wonders. We both do it in local cities in the U.S., and now we're going to be all over the world. And we also offer trips to go to wonderful places, to go explore the spominics of the Balkans or or 
take a safari to look at the insects of Namibia or to go on a sailing voyage around the abandoned lighthouses and sunken ships of, of Sardinia. Um, and we're going to just do more and more of those and we're going to do more and more of these local experiences in partnership with Airbnb. So I would just really encourage you to come to Atlas Obscura, to go to Atlas Obscura slash trips and atlasobscura.com slash trips, excuse me, and check it out. It's it's going to be a great partnership. It's going to, I hope, give you a chance to explore parts of the world you haven't been able to see, to have great experiences in your own neighborhood that are unusual and wondrous and surprising. Please check it out. And apologies for, for my totally self-interested chatter this week. In order to clear away that self-interest, let's talk about your chatter, listeners. You have sent us so many, so many great chatters. This week, again, there were literally like eight great chatters. There were the ones I, I couldn't even get to. John, there was one about the whale, the, the know, Soviet I whale, know. the I Russian we, whale. We may come back to that one. But we're, I'm not even going to talk about that, even though it was so good. But you were tweeting your chatter to us at, at Slate Gavfest. There are so many great ones. I'm actually going to quickly mention two because they were one is super timely and one is super shocking. The Actually, both super shocking. So one from at Mohan Warusha, from Mohan Warusha points to a New York Times story. The 9-11 tribute lights are endangering 160,000 birds a year. And it's a story about how when they turn on the, the wonderful lights that on 9-11 they do, they light up the place that was where the Twin Towers stood and these two pillars of light that stretched the horizon, these enormously bright lights. It's a, it's a really stunning, beautiful, moving thing. But it has the effect of drawing birds that are migratory birds because they see these lights and they are drawn to it and they can get disoriented and off track and thousands of them, hundreds of more than a hundred thousand, according to an estimate are at risk. So that was a great story uh, about the, the cost of that memorial. And then I also want to point to a story from at R. Freilich from Ryan Freilich or Freilich, which is a follow-up on our opioid conversation it's about how there's a Louisiana Congress member of Congress who's also a candidate for governor, a Republican, who owns pharmacies that are dispensing opiate pills by the gazillion. He's he's a pharmacy owner. His name is um, Ralph Abraham. I hadn't heard of him, but he's a member of Congress in Louisiana, Republican, and he's he's one of the people who's who's abetting this epidemic. Shocking story in Bayou Brief. Check that out. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. We had help from Melissa Kaplan, Alan Peng. Who is helping you, Emily? Laura Eisensee is helping me, and I am very grateful. And our researcher is, of course, Bridget Dunlap. Thank you, Bridget. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. You should follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. And please, if you're going to be in the Twin Cities next week, we'll have our show on next Wednesday, September 18th. We are excited. There are still a few tickets left, so go grab those tickets and join us there on September 18th at the Fitzgerald Theater. Go to slate.com slash live to do that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We look forward to being all together next week and seeing some of you in the flesh. Bye-bye. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Good to see you. Good to hear you. Can't hear you or see you, truthfully, because we're just broadcasting, but I'm imagining what you look like. So, I have had an interesting experience in the past uh, week or so, which is that I've started a novel called A Suitable Boy, which is a maybe a 15 or 20-year-old novel by Vikram Sate, and it's a 1,500-page novel. It is a just extraordinarily big and heavy book, and it's a, it's a 
telling of the lives of some intertwined families in in India just after partition around 1950, and very cheerful, romantic, interesting, lively book. It's delightful. But it's 1,500 pages long, 1,500 pages. And I also this summer read a book called Fall, a Neil Stevenson book, which is 900 pages long, 900 pages long. So that's a lot of pages that I've been reading in single books. So I wanted us to have a discussion of how long books should be and how long also movies should be. So should books be this long or not? And is there a proper length for book or for movie? And I think my answer, just to tip it off, I'm not going to give it away right now, is that there is a proper length for a movie, but there's not a proper length for a book. But I'm going to tell you exactly how long a movie should be, but you're going to have to listen. Emily, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I get intimidated by really long books. I have been meaning to read A Suitable Boy forever and have not picked it up because it's like a doorstop. And I feel this way about Infinite Jest, which sits unread on my bookshelf. Uh, I barely made it through reading Marcel Proust yeah. finally, finally a few years ago because In Search of Lost Time, just they, like they're so endless, these things. It makes you feel like you'll never, it, it's hard to start. It, be, it creates this huge barrier to entry. So what does the, how long should something be then? It should be short or it should be broken into more manageable pieces. I mean, I guess the thing is the, the end run around. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.